everyone. I'm Pun Bandu, and if, like me, Dark Heights Season 1 left you hungry for more, I've got great news. Dark Heights has a Season 2. I've got the first episode queued up and ready to play for you right now. So buckle up and let the dulcet tones of Dion Graham as Majo guide you back to that sinister suburb of L.A. And when you're done, look for the rest of Season 2 on the Realm Network wherever you listen to podcasts. First, this word from our sponsor. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this special presentation of Dark Heights Season 2, Episode 1, Kingdom of Corruption. Majo. FBI case file 4815 slash 1623-42. Begin journal entry. Not everything I've told you is true. You may judge me for it. Looking back on what I've written in these plain black notebooks, here I am at the start of a new one, the second one. I see now what I've done. I've told the tale, I've painted the picture with a certain forced perspective. I've made myself appear to be a better man in your eyes. I wanted you to see me as a hero, Little Wing. Perhaps that's why I started writing this in the first place. Not just to explain myself, not simply to record events as they happen, but above all else to choose the words that honor who I am who I was, and to justify the things I've done here at the end. 
I want you to be proud of me. But I've been lying. I did not tell you that I knew Jenny and Karen would die. I knew it in the moment that I created a sanctum for myself. Once I had placed the enchanted stones in their five-point star configuration throughout the B&B, I sensed it. A presage of the death and destruction that would claim the place and the people in it because of me. I knew the consequences of my presence in that house, yet I remained there. It is how magic works. Sometimes Jenny and Karen would die, but I would live. In a sense, I was knowingly trading my life for theirs. Kel Dimash, we all die. The truth is that some lives are worth more than others. Yet when I traveled from the bedroom of the B&B, where Jenny and Karen's desecrated bodies burned on the bed behind me, I was reeling. Ashes swirled in my wake as I stepped through the rift from Park Heights of the B&B, returning to Los Angeles. I arrived where I'd left, in the alley behind the downtown Chinese restaurant. Emerging from the padlocked service door, I stumbled a few steps out of the cloud of black smoke that had accompanied me through the rift and pitched forward onto a pile of leaking black garbage bags. I flailed in the refuse before pushing myself up. Some life was returning to my left arm where the Trinity agent had struck me with his baton. My right hand throbbed painfully. Swimming in my vision, I saw a bloodied, battered face the agent, the young man whom I'd beaten mercilessly. The adversary would be looking for me. I knew this. So I put myself into motion even as pain and exhaustion compelled me to give up, to lie down. Then I realized with a shock that the sorrow was coming on suddenly, powerfully. I would be helpless while it lasted. After all the power I had used on this night, the travel from Arson to the B&B and then to Los Angeles, the Thomasphere and the excoriations I had employed against that trinity, I was in trouble. The sorrow would paralyze me and the Watchers would find me quickly. In the aftermath of all that magic, I must have been lit up like a neon sign. There was one place where I could attempt to hide while the sorrow came over me. Taking in a deep breath, I crossed my willpower with the city's lines of energy. Just this small work of magic, this wayfinding, wouldn't make me shine much brighter, I hoped. Moving forward, I could not escape what I'd left behind. The sorrow would not allow me to forget. When I looked up, I saw Tatai leaping through a window, shrieking in defiance. The towers all around me were on fire. A motorcycle accelerated down the street, and I ducked my head from the sound of its engine, a roar like automatic gunfire. I jostled a pedestrian on the sidewalk. She spoke in Lena's voice. They do things to me, Gabriel. They hurt me. Don't leave me here. On my hands and knees in another back alley. Everything tilting. They hurt me, Lena had said to me, at Arson, 
before I left her. No, it was me. I hurt you, Lena. I deceived myself in order to believe what I wanted to, that you were a weapon of war. But that's not what you were, no. And I was the one who killed Jenny, Karen. All my fault, the blood, the death, my fault. Just for a moment, that wayfinding I'd worked pierced through the fog of the sorrow like a beam of light. I was close to my destination, to Skid Row. And I was no longer alone. The homeless were all around. I shuffled on past the weather-beaten tents whose occupants emerged to stare. Others followed me, curious. Someone veered into my path, challenging my arrival, but I kept moving past them broken and empty enough to pose little threat to their territory. Before I came to Park Heights, I had made my way through Los Angeles, disgruntled that Anpenpan's fading enchantment had made me appear homeless to anyone who encountered me. Now here I was again, among L.A.'s dispossessed, and this time I had truly become one of them. It was where I belonged. In this place, Every mind was unquiet. Being here might just mask my power signature from the watchers. The echo of it drowned in the cacophony of confusion, pangs of thirst, anger, hunger. There was a Vietnam War vet in a high visibility vest who fell into step with me. I had difficulties separating my mind from his. His name was Manny, Lieutenant Corporal Emmanuel Smith. There was an ancient bag lady across the street. Her name was Georgia, who pushed along her shopping cart, bulging with white plastic bags, going up and down the sidewalk. Romeo was what they called the heroin addict, who sometimes stayed at the Cecil Hotel when he could pay with profit from his street corner drug deals, but often slept in that tent there, the red one pitched in the doorway of the boarded-up shop front. Down on your luck, down and out. Dispossessed, derelict, destitute. The words, they detonate like ordinance. If poverty is the worst form of violence, then whose war is it being waged in the inner cities? 53,000 homeless men, women, and children in Los Angeles. And me. And the sorrow. Series Avenue graffiti raged across the alley's cement walls in leaping neon letters. Cartoon AK-47s, rap star avatars, a hallucinogenic corridor tunneling into the skin of the city. Garbage that was piled higher than a man. Garbage piled the length of a city block. Rats emerged from it, noses and tails a-twitch, turning back, unimpressed back to their interconnected nests in their kingdoms of corruption. All down Ceres Avenue, the many tents were arrayed like a city in miniature, governed by chaos. There were fallen boulevards and thoroughfares congested with debris. Within this maze, unspoken rules of territory and hegemony were 
often contested, always changing. The sorrow felt like it flowed everywhere. I'd always been spared the worst of it, compared to many of my Archimedean brothers. But this time, there was no escape. Perhaps it found fertile ground in my guilt over Jenny and Karen, over Lena, to devastate me so completely. I no longer knew myself. How many days passed? I became aware, only incrementally, that I was still alive. My body lay on the ground beneath a blue plastic tarp. I was hot with a fever, yet frozen through from exposure. Let an ending come. It's what I deserve. Yet, nothing ended. I sat up, and the tarp rasped over my body. I had been lying on the ground between a knot of tents whose grime-stained sides billowed wetly around me, mustard yellow and bruised blue and army camel green. My senses were returning. My mind was once again my own. The sun shone above in a cloudless sky, and the heat was already stifling. The rank smell of spoiled, rotting trash was powerful. Yet in this heat, I shivered. I knew that if I had not once worked magic on myself for protection from the elements, I would be dead now. All my clothes had been stripped. I recalled that I had been absurdly attired in a jet black suit with tails, dress pants, and expensive shoes for meeting Lena at Arson. But now all that was left was my once white undershirt, boxes, and black socks. And my few possessions were gone. My hat, on Penpon, my enchanted switchblade, crybaby, both gone. I might never get them back. In some way, this felt right. Absorbed into this makeshift, transient community, would they be of use to anyone? Would their passive magic, even faded, help someone find a way out from here? Help to change a life? I would never know. I imagined Romeo, the drug dealer, defending himself with Crybaby. Then I pictured Manny, the war vet, putting on Unpenpon. I hoped there was power in it yet. And what would people see? What would their ideal be? Would they see a proud man, tall and strong, soft-spoken, noble? In the nearest tent, I ducked into it. There was an old man sitting cross-legged like a guru. His ragged white beard was streaked with black grime and his countenance was crossed with deep lines. I felt somehow that he had been watching over me the whole time. Now that I had come back to life, his ancient weather-beaten face split like the bark of a tree with the axe blow of a wide smile. He continued to grin and wheezed out laughter as I rummaged through the tent and put on a pair of gaudy orange windbreaker pants and matching jacket, several sizes too large. I made my way through the tent city. In a shopping cart close by, 
At the top of a pile of plastic bags, shoeboxes, broken umbrellas, half of a kite. I saw my Hello Kitty backpack. I snatched it out of the car. A man's indignant voice called out to me. Motherfucker, give me back my goddamn duffel bag. I ignored it, turned on my heels, and moved quickly in the opposite direction through the tent maze. I tugged on the backpack's zipper and opened it, just to be sure. Though I knew it would have been difficult, if not impossible, for anyone else to open it. My notebooks were still there. And my deck of cards, wrapped in the snakeskin strap. I smiled a little. I picked the deck up, got the edges of the cards, put it back. The weight felt wrong. There was no opportunity to assess what had happened to it. Someone was waiting for me at the edge of the tent city. I knew him. I knew him well. Madero. Juan Garcia Madero. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I came up to him slowly. Where's your pet? Your golem? Your guardian? And where is your new partner? She seems to be absent as well. That last night at Arson... Lena had used her power to throw the woman a distance that must have hurt her seriously. Agent Meta is in the best of care. Division 13, I suppose. Another recruit. Another life to expend in their service. Your masters are merciless. It's not like that this time. I value her. She's better than we are. I frowned. Little Wing, you will remember that Madero was the young FBI agent who found me at the top of Coit Tower during the Battle of San Francisco in 1989. I dominated his will, commanded him to fire his assault rifle upon his own team. This was one of the reasons he had hunted me tirelessly ever since. Yet there was more. I have held back from telling you what I did to him. It damns me. But now, there was something in him I hadn't seen before. You look tired. He gave me a once-over. I am tired. But you, you look ridiculous. Grimly, I remembered I was dressed in an oversized creamsicle orange windbreaker suit. Madero stood casually with his hands in the pockets of his slacks, a study in controlled stillness. All of the tension was in his voice. 
It's been a long time since we've had a chance to talk, Gabriel. We've never talked. I saw that there was a black Mercedes limousine parked across the street. A few of the homeless from the tent city had already gathered around this symbol of wealth, drawing near it, listening to its engine idle, observing the image of themselves reflected in its polished enamel. When I looked at the limousine, I sensed a familiar constraint within my mind, an inability to comprehend. It felt like the world around me was being pulled toward the car, like light to the edge of a black hole. Someone was in there, watching us through the tinted windows, waiting. Without thinking, I prepared myself, a work of power. In the tent city behind me, the movement of the homeless men and women slowed to near stillness. Madero was talking. Maybe it's true that we've never been able to have a conversation, to sit down together, to have a drink together, even. I would have liked that. He sounded disconnected from himself, words like a villain's rambling prologue to an onset of sudden violence. Suddenly, there was faint chatter from Madero's earpiece. There's no time left. He wants to talk to you now. Listen to me. Madero leaned in close, discreetly handed me a business card, and spoke in a hush like an exhale of breath. I can help you. Send a text to this number. Then he stepped away from me. Three agents emerged from the limousine out of the driver's side doors and the passengers. The few homeless who still loitered near the vehicle scattered as the trinity of agents unholstered automatic pistols and held them muzzled down at the ready. Another man came out of the car. He walked around the back of it and crossed the street. He wore a perfect dark gray tailored suit. His hands were gloved, though he began to pull the gloves off finger by finger as he approached. I felt his power. It was a mountain of pressure against me. I could feel it across my skin, as if his presence changed the substance of the world, rippled through it like a stone thrown into still water. It left me sickened, made my heart race. I felt his power inside of me, a gathering darkness, an inhuman otherness. He was a watcher. I had seen him once before, walking toward me out of the shattered house on beach in Divisadero, plumes of smoke rising up behind him like outstretched wings. I had stood alongside my brother, Archimedes, then. My name is Marius Severand. His voice was beautiful, rich with sound, but to hear it set my teeth on edge, and the words rang in my skull like a drill. So this was Lena's father, and Will's, the scholar. He extended his hand to shake, as if the decades of our war did not exist, as if he could not, in fact, destroy me with barely a thought. I had no thomosphere in place, no other work of power with which to ward myself. What I had just prepared wasn't ready yet. I was helpless and I did not move. There was an acceptance in me. I would not try to fight him. There was no point to it. But I wasn't about to shake his fucking hand. You needn't worry. 
Nothing will happen to you. I wish only to talk. He held both of his dark brown kid leather gloves together in one hand. If you'll excuse us, agent. For one more second, Madero stared at me, silently imploring, or judging. Then he turned without another word and went back across the street to the limousine, summarily dismissed. In appearance, the watcher, Marius the Scholar, was distinguished. A handsome man, older but essentially ageless, with the full dignity and the proud demeanor of royalty or immeasurable wealth. He radiated a patriarchal trust that brought emotions of loyalty and devotion to the surface. But then the semblance of humanity dropped away from him. It was like the illusion had been switched off. Shall we walk together? Away from the unpleasantness of this environment? Marius regarded the tent city behind me with something that approached disgust. Or perhaps I imagined the expression. His flat black eyes were impossible to understand, and his face was impassive as sculpted stone. Still, it felt like he suffered distaste for any place where there were people. No. Even the one syllable was difficult to utter. But speaking it gave me a purchase of just a little strength. Shoot yourself? I didn't understand why I was still alive. How many opportunities had they had, the adversary, since San Francisco, since the fall of our citadel in Paris, to kill me, to erase me? I had slipped out of every one of their chances. Yet they knew I was here. They could have done it, this time. Instead, they waited until I recovered, Marius said. We need to talk about Lina. They do things to me, Lina had said. They hurt me. Marius continued. Why did you poison her against me? An unexpected question. Did he love her? Did the Watchers, inhuman and immortal as they are, have feelings for each other? For anyone? I didn't know what she was. I'm not so sure you do either. She is Liren, the same as me, as all of us. She is a child. Somehow, you created a child. Marius nodded slightly. Two of them, in fact. A daughter and a son. How they've grown. There was something here. There was something that bothered him. Even with all the power that you possess, you didn't know she had come to me. You didn't know I was teaching her. Marius hesitated. There have been many mistakes made with Lina. Lately, we've neglected to consider her properly, or to monitor her actions. For years now, she has not been able to fulfill her promise. She is, sadly, broken. Because of you. If she's broken, it's your fault. I can feel it, plainly. No. She is my daughter. I've done what's best for her. You don't understand what that means, to have a daughter. All this time that you've existed, how many thousands of years has it been? 
And suddenly you know what it's like to be a father. Raising a daughter, loving her, making her strong for the world. Anger rushed through me. Don't condescend to lie to me. His expression remained calm, unchanged. Your emotions about her, they're strong. You have a bond. Suddenly, I had to avoid his eyes. On the sidewalk, his beautiful, polished black wingtips faced my filth-encrusted socks. It's unfortunate. The things you have taught her have only made her more broken in our eyes. Which brings me to the heart of the matter. He began to put his gloves back on. There is no outcome here that can tolerate your presence. It's never been said quite like that to me before. I braced myself. This civil conversation, this ceasefire parley, had not removed the threat of him from my awareness. The warlocks are long defeated. He pulled his gloves back on. Except for you, who remain elusively unquelled. I was defiant. There are others, more than you know. Of course there are, hiding like rats. But they don't have your abilities. No, you are truly the last of your order. Marius inspected both his gloved hands, held out. We wish to offer you a truce. It has been decided by us that this war can end. I find that hard to believe. Listen to my words, Gabriel. You know there's only truth in what I say. A truce, an end. He looked directly at me and I averted my gaze from him again. It's what you want, isn't it? A chance to rest, a place to die quietly, with dignity. I wish I could say there was Watcher's power in his words, but there wasn't. And still, they worked something in me. A resignation to have had my desires so perfectly framed. Despondence, to have been made so insignificant. Why? I have nothing. I am nothing. Why offer this to me? We know you will accept. I was silent. And in return, you will disappear, as you did before, after San Francisco. It is time. There is hardly anything left of you. Time to disappear for good. His hands dropped to his sides. And you will never see or speak to Lina, again. Don't leave me here, Lina had said to me. And I had said, we don't have a choice, but you'll find me again. At these final words of his, everything had become clear. I now understood the shape of the future. Laughing, I said, where are my manners? Thank you for showing me what I needed to see. Warlock, watch yourself. She doesn't belong to you, Lina. I see her clearly, even if you do not. You made her to be your daughter, but she isn't. 
You created her for a purpose, yet she defines herself. She will be free. I am going to take her from you. His eyes shone bright and black. He lifted his hand. Power stirred all around us like a rising wind. Look at me, Watcher. Within myself, I completed the work of magic I had earlier commenced. The homeless men and women of Skid Row began to move together in a strange and unnatural unison, only very slowly at first. Look at me. I've bound myself to them, to all of them. Marius glanced past me and saw the crowd of men and women advancing toward us. If you kill me now, you kill all of them. Hundreds of them. There may be a thousand, here and throughout the nearest city blocks. Do it. Move against me. All of them will die. Marius said nothing. I turned away from the Watcher. For all their impossible power, the Watchers were in the same position as my order had been. Hidden in the world, undiscovered amongst humanity. The Scholar would not butcher a thousand souls for mine. He would not risk the exposure. The crowd of homeless men and women took me in, surrounded me, moved with me. There was a flow of power between myself and all of them. I held the hands of those closest to me, and they held the hands of others. Together, we moved away from the street and re-entered the tent city, soon out of sight of the Trinity stood by the limousine with their automatic pistols, out of sight of the Watcher. I made the crowd of us walk farther, needing to get away, afraid to stop. My gamble had worked. This time, If you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it with friends. It'll help us a lot. You can listen ad-free by joining Realm Unlimited at realm.fm or Realm Plus on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more shows like Dark Heights by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Thanks for listening. I'm Pun Bandu. You're listening to Fear, Dark Heights, Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God. And we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller. Produced by Marco Palmieri, Fred Greenhalge, Kaylin West, and Haley Wagreich. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Marcy Wiseman, and Julian Yap. Starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Sound design, editing, mixing, and mastering by Kaylin West. Original music by Chris Miller. 
Music supervision by Marcus Bagala. Production manager, Alexis Latshaw. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Fear is produced by Mary Asadolahi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Pun Bandu. Audio editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Fear by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.